0: Thank more view. Great to see the, those of you who are here in person, grateful for all of you who are joining us online. It is said that uh, one of the greatest spiritual awakenings spiritual revivals that have happened over the last few decades is in South Korea, where today the largest Methodist, Baptist and Presbyterian Church is in South Korea, where the largest church in the world is there, which makes up almost a million members. And Pastor Cho is the founding pastor of that church. He passed away this past September. And a few years ago, Pastor Cho reflected back on this revival and said this, in 1983, we had a total of 120,000 new converts. Not just members in the church, people in South Korea who came to Jesus. And why are so many people being saved within, within a single church? We have seen the importance of developing and keeping a prayer life. If we stop praying, the revival will wane. If we continue praying, I believe that all Korea can be saved. I believe that the same level of revival can be experienced in your church. There is no land too hard for the Holy Spirit to work. There is no church too dead. There is no country too closed to the gospel. The answer is prayer. And today I don't want to talk about having a better prayer life. I do want to talk about what it means to step deeper in faith with Jesus. To step deeper into the waters of faith. Uh, Craig Rochelle is a church leader in the Oklahoma City area and he often challenges church leaders and he says, "Don't, don't insult God by praying small prayers. Don't insult God with small requests. So when we come before God, the requests we offer aren't just to make my life better. What we're praying is for God to open up our eyes to see what the kingdom of God is doing all over the world and how God is inviting us to be a part of that. So I want you to open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 47 today as we unfolded the vision of this church, which centers centers around the word awakening a couple of years ago. Ezekiel 47 is a place that hangs on banners that are to my right and to my left. Ezekiel 47 is a place that I've preached multiple times over the last couple of years, but every time I read it, and I love this about the Bible, every time I read it, something new grabs my heart takes hold of my imagination so today I want to remind you of th- some things and hopefully show you a couple of new things that can bless you as you go throughout your week and as we as a church participate today in commitment Sunday in Ezekiel chapter 47 it begins this is a vision that Ezekiel receives and he receives this vision toward the very end of Ezekiel now he wrote this book over a period of probably 25 years so for over three decades People had been in captivity, away from home, and to be away from home then meant you were away from a temple, you were away from the place where you offered sacrifices, you're in a new land, so worship was different. And just imagine all the questions that the people had. Like, how long is this going to last? When is God going to come and deliver us? Are we going to be here forever? Will we ever have a place to worship again? All these questions. And Ezekiel receives a vision toward the very end of his book. Ezekiel chapter 47. There are only 48 chapters in Ezekiel. And in this vision, it begins with a small trickle in the center of the temple. So usually a rushing river begins because there's a waterfall or water that comes off of the mountain, but this one begins in the sanctuary of God. And in Ezekiel 47, verse 3, what you read is this. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. Now, a cubit, they would uh, measure from the bottom of the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. So it was about 18 inches. So 1,000 cubits, we're talking about 1,500 feet. Maybe a better way to think about it is like 500 yards, five football fields. So in the vision, Ezekiel is walking 1,500 feet in ankle-deep water. This would be like us moving from this place today and walking down to Murphy's. Ankle deep water. It's probably not going to be too strenuous. You're going to have to pick your feet up a little bit. You're not going to train for a marathon in ankle deep water. But most of you have been in ankle deep water before. In the ocean, a lake, a river. It's ankle deep. So it's not too hard. But you're having to think a little bit as you walk. Years ago I was at a retreat. And a guy just experienced the power of God that night. He wanted to be baptized that night. We were at a retreat site that there was no baptism, there were no bathtubs, there were no horse troughs, so we actually tried to tell him, why don't we wait until tomorrow where we could go to a church or we could find a house with a bathtub? He was like, no, tonight, and he pointed, and there was a lake. This was about 1130 at night. So four guys, we got down with our swimsuits on, we started walking out in the lake, but we had to walk over 150 feet out into the lake just to get the water that was knee deep so we could baptize him. On the way out there, we're thinking, is there a way we could lay him down and just splash water and create some wave that could cover him? But we kept walking, and if you were in pitch dark, 150 feet out into a lake, like for me, I was in, a, in, in the moment, I was like, if there is just a small sound of like a tadpole, I'm going to think this is alligator or an anaconda, like a snake or something, and Jesus isn't going to be the only human being who ever walked on water. Like, that's what I'm thinking in my mind. 500 yards walking out in ankle-deep water. And after, f- after 500 yards, after 1,500 feet, here's what happens. It's not just ankle-deep anymore. In verse 4, it's, uh, if, uh, he measured off another 1,000 cubits, another 1,500 feet, 500 yards, and led me through water that was knee-deep. And then he measured off another 1,000 and led me through water that was up to the waist. So think about it. I mean, it's like from here to Murphy in ankle-deep water. And then from Murphy's all the way down to Starbucks. Starbucks in knee-deep water. Now if you're in knee-deep water walking 500 yards, hey, this is gonna take a little work. You're gonna have to kind of watch your step. You're gonna have to keep your balance. That's a long ways to go. So now we're all the way down to Starbucks where you go through the drive-through and you're reminded that some of your retirements have been pushed back like two or three years because of that place, am I right? You can get your vanilla latte and then a protein pop. That's what I call them. It's the birthday cake pop, but it's a protein pop. They're good for you. And then after knee-deep, it's waist-deep. So now you're going from Starbucks all the way to the interstate where you get on the on-ramp and you pray prayers that the Lord would just help you survive whatever ride is going to be like out on Interstate 40. So imagine this, 1,500 feet ankle-deep, 1,500 feet knee-deep, 1,500 feet waist-deep. And I don't know why in the vision it didn't go a little quicker. Where you could go from ankle-deep to knee-deep to waist-deep a little quicker, but it was this long, drawn-out process. If you're waist-deep in water, like you were having to pay attention to every step, you're having to stay focused, you don't have time to think about what is around you or conversations that are happening, waist-deep, 500 yards, you talk about something that's pretty stren- strenuous. And he goes all the way out there, and I've always wondered when I read this, like, why, why is it this way? I mean, and then, and then I begin to think. Ezekiel's writing to a lot of people who some of them have been captives for 30 years. And freedom for people who have been ca- held captive. Sometimes it can take a long journey to help them live into a new kind of, a new kind of freedom. Sometimes it can be a, pro- a, a, a process to like shake some of the captivity out of them so they can embrace what it means to live a free life. And could it be sometimes the way God works is God is inviting you just to take a step of faith, just a step that is closer to God. And as you take that step, it may be ankle deep. And some of you today may be carrying guilt and shame because you have been ankle deep for way too long. And maybe heaven wants you to hear today that heaven is glad and they are proud that you're ankle deep, but it's time for you to take the next step. It's time for you to go a little deeper. And sometimes it may be God saying, are you willing to walk in ankle deep water for a period of time until God feels like you're ready for something a little deeper and then it's knee deep and then God is still inviting you deeper and for the rest of your life, the invitation of God into deeper waters will never stop being extended to you. God's inviting you into deeper waters. And for Ezekiel, it gets to the point where it's just a rushing river. Like he can't even swim in it anymore. It's this river that began with the trickle in the sanctuary. The place where people would go to meet with God. And it becomes this rushing river that blesses the entire world. So I want to talk to us just for a moment of what it means to step. Because anybody who would step to the temple where this little trickle began... It was both a step that you would take as an individual, but it was also a step that the whole community would take together. Because you would go up to the temple to offer sacrifices and to connect to God, and you would do it for personal reasons, but you're moving with the people of God. So any step we take toward the heart of God or in worship is a step that I am taking as a person, but it is a step that we are taking as the people of God. We are moving and we are stepping together. So today we've been talking for weeks about a Commitment Sunday. And this isn't because it's some form of legalism and we're trying to check boxes and have a database that we can check what members are doing what. It is because as a church, we have been given the responsibility by God to help call people into a deeper place and we will be held accountable before God of how we are inviting people deeper into the heart of God. So here in this church, we have a mission statement, a vision statement, we have core values, and we have five commitments. And our mission statement over 15 years has been helping people see Jesus. Four words, mission statements need to pass pass the t-shirt test, it's catchy. It's like a motto for us. It hangs on the front of our church. We want to be about helping people see Jesus. Our vision for over two years centers around the word awakening. The first line of our vision statement is that we exist to awaken people to the greatness of Jesus. That we want to encounter God in a way that God is opening up the eyes of the hearts of people in this church to see that God is doing things all over the world and God is inviting you to be a part of it. We want to exist in a way that the way we live our lives is helping open up the hearts and the eyes of hearts of other people to see how great Jesus is. We launched core values a couple of years ago. And these eight core values are rooted in the heart of God like this is what God is like. You can read scripture and our values tell you this is what God is like and it's what our hearts should be like too. It's not just what we do it is who we are in the process of becoming. And a little over five years ago we launched the five commitments. So when we think about holistic discipleship, like how we are inviting people into a life of following Jesus, it's discover, connect, serve, give, go. Five commitments. Now, when it came to the early church, when it came to the way Paul would write his letters in the New Testament, I don't know if they had language or phrases like mission statement, vision statement, core values, or five commitments. But let me encourage you to think about something this way because I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we think that the early church had access to all 27 books in the New Testament like we have access to them. So when it comes to us thinking about what it means to be the church, we can read Matthew through Revelation and we can encounter teaching and instruction about what it meant to be the church, but the early church didn't have 27 books in the New Testament to do that with. It was decades, maybe centuries, until they had access to what we know as the 27 books of the New Testament. So what they had was they had the Torah, they had the Old Testament, they had the stories of the life of Jesus and the death and the burial burial and resurrection of Jesus. They had instruction from the Apostles. But every book that was written had a unique focus for a certain context in a certain time and in a certain place. And there were times that Paul would write to churches and he would place in front of them certain phrases or values that he didn't necessarily place in front of other churches because it's what they needed in their context. For example, in the book of Philippians, Paul writes to them and and urges them multiple times to rejoice in the Lord always, to embrace joy. And I think a big reason Paul's writing to them about joy and rejoicing is because they had forgotten how to do it. So for them to be the people of God in Philippi, Paul wanted rejoicing and joy to be on their mind and in their heart. He wanted the church to focus on it because how could they be a witness in their community if they didn't have it? When it comes to the book of Galatians, which is more of a province than just a city. In Galatians, when Paul writes to them, he's really upset because they they began to follow a gospel that wasn't the gospel of Jesus. They were stepping outside of the boundaries of what it meant to stay true to the gospel. So in Galatians 5, Paul talks about being led by the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit. And he gives them the fruit of the Spirit because for them, they needed to step back in alignment with who God wanted wanted them to be. And that wasn't a teaching Paul necessarily gave every other church, but for them it mattered. In the book of Ephesians, it's a city of 250,000 people. And three different times, Paul uses a phrase, what it means to live for the praise of God's glory. And the reason Paul did that is because in Ephesus, there were over two dozen pagan temples who were all telling people to live for the praise of the glory of their God or the glory of Rome. And Paul writes to the church in Ephesus saying, hey, don't live for the glory of the other gods and don't live for the glory of Rome. We live for the praise of God's glory. It became a motto for them. So when Paul writes to churches, sometimes he gives them unique phrases or certain values that this is what you need in this season of the life of this church to be what God has called you to be. So our uniqueness in our mission and our vision and our core values and our commitments, it doesn't make us better than any other church, but it gives us focus and direction and purpose and unity, and what it means to be the people of God here and as we live out the life of Christ in our communities. In Ezekiel 47, in verse 6 and 7, here's what it says. And I've read Ezekiel 47 hundreds of times in the last few years. And this is one line that really caught hold of me, shook me a little bit, caused me to do a few things differently in my life over the past week or so. And here's what it says he asked me, this is a vision that Ezekiel receives, he's out in the middle of the water now, son of man do you see this? and then he led me back to the bank of the river, some of your versions say that he led him back and they sat down on the bank of the river and when I arrived there I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river and those trees had been there the entire time but the deeper Ezekiel went into the water the more focused he had to become on what the step was in front of him, that he wasn't able to look around and to see all the fruit and the growing of the trees and how this river had blessed the entire world because he was so focused on what was in front of him. Now, when he returned, I don't know if this meant he returned 4,500 feet or if he returned just to the shore, but he returned and he sat down, and when he sat down, on the shore of that river he was able to look around and see there is restoration and beauty all around me and I hope that as a preacher and the way I lead and the way we do church and we go about the life of the church here at Sycamore View that there are times where we are inviting everybody into deeper water and as we go into deeper water that there is focus on how God is inviting us into a deeper place And as a church, we've got to be able to go over to the bank of a river where we can slow down and sit down so we can open up our eyes and see all the beauty that is around us. And there are times that we can say, say, so focused on a task or we're down in the weeds or what step is in front of us that we can totally miss out on all the beauty around us. And there are times you can stay on the shore way too long and see the beauty when God is inviting you to get back into the water. Last September, I went with a group of guys. We went to the Grand Canyon. These are some of my closest friends. A group of preachers. There are actually 12 of us. Only seven of us went to the Grand Canyon together. And every year, we get together for about three days. And for three days we share uh, what's going on in our lives and in our ministries and we we confess and we pray for each other and encourage one another and I know a lot of professions for the last two years I know it's been a challenge and some of my preacher friends I mean they are just hanging on by a thread so I was in charge of our group this past year and I said guys here's what we're doing we're going to the Grand Canyon because it's been a long strenuous two years and we're gonna go and we're gonna do something strenuous together now for me I'm like I'm a seven on the Enneagram I love adventure. I love risk-taking. So my thought was we're going go to go do a seven-mile hike. It's going to be strenuous. And then as we do it, we're going to talk about leadership and we're going to talk about our lives. And we're going to love it. So we got to the Grand Canyon early in the morning. And these are some of my best friends in the world, guys I talk to regularly. But over on the left of that picture is uh, that's Randy Harris. Randy Harris is 65, 66 years old. And we, we love Randy. Randy's a mentor to most of us. He, he travels with us, he goes on this trip, and he, he listens, he pastors our hearts. I love what Randy does for all of us. And we started this hike, and we get about two miles into the hike, and my calf muscle began to like cramp up. Now, I, I don't train for marathons, I don't do that, but I, I consider myself somebody who is in decent shape. So the fact that I'm on mile two and I'm already cramping up, and what made it worse is I looked in front of me and Randy Harris, who doesn't work out much at all, and I'm not calling him old, all right, but he's 65, 66 years old, wasn't hurting at all, not even breaking a sweat. So my ego took over me and I'm thinking, there's no way I'm gonna let Randy Harris out-hike me right now. All right, you know, I'm slapping my calf muscle, like, just hoping it would like fire or, or something. If I did it, it would just fire up. Uh, and, but we went all the way down three and a half miles came back up. Now, here's the deal when you hike the Grand Canyon. You were surrounded by beauty everywhere. Amazing. But if you try to hike and focus on the beauty, you will die. (laughs) Because when you hike the Grand Canyon, you've got to pay attention to what the step is in front of you. What is the next step you need to take? And the more tired you are on a hike, the more you need to focus on whatever the next step is in front of you and if you want to see the beauty you have to stop or get off the trail or sit down for a little while so you can look up and take a few minutes just to take it all in the movement of God is happening all around us and God is inviting you to come deeper and deeper into the waters and there are times when you need to pause and slow down and open your eyes so you can be aware that God is doing things all around you. The way this vision ends in verse 12, it's a verse, and, and there are images of this verse that play out throughout all of Scripture. But in Ezekiel 47:12 it says this, "Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail." Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. It all begins in the sanctuary of God where people, not just individuals, the people of God go to connect to God. And it ends up being something that blesses the entire world. This is imagery that plays out in Psalm chapter 1. In the last chapter in our Bible, in Revelation 22, it is almost word for word what you read in Ezekiel chapter 47. A river that flows from heaven, where there are trees growing everywhere. And the fruit is for the nourishment of the soul and for the healing of the nations. So church today, where does God's river not want to flow? And how is God's river flowing into you? And how is God's river flowing everywhere else around you? I want to invite Jim Hinkle to come and join me. And as Jim makes his way, and we're going to talk about Commitment Sunday just for a moment, I just want to speak a few things over you. Together as a church, we step. And together we wade in the waters. And together we commit. And together we reflect. Together we serve. Together we seek God in the sanctuary. And together we become the fruit that blesses the entire world. Amen.